the Defense Department needs to make clearer distinctions between investing in programs that will have limited commercial support and programs that have broader commercial applications. A new report from the RAND Corporation looks at how the Air Force develops and acquires new technologies. Specifically, it looks at the commercial satellite communication industry and commercial space-based positioning, navigation, and timing, or PNT. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr talked to RAND's Jonathan Wong about the report's findings. The DOD, and particularly the Air Force, foresaw some concerns about that, about how much reliance are you are willing to put on commercial commercial SATCOM generally, and then some of the new the new proliferated Leo constellations. You know, Starlink being the most prominent example. And in that one, I think we're a little bit more risk tolerant because there is a we we know there's a healthy commercial demand for commercial uh, satellite communications, and so that gives a cushion that we you know we we looked at the market and we saw that. DOD is not the biggest customer in uh, in, in using commercial satellite communications. Uh, they're growing. We can talk about that, too, uh, if you like. But they're not the biggest uh, biggest ones, and it's quite diversified. And so we felt and we looked at the financials for the for the firms that are involved, and there's a lot more uh, than in the commercial P&T market. We saw that they had a health. Many of them had fairly healthy, uh, healthy business doing things in, uh, in GEO or MEO. And if they really wanted to dive into, you know, proliferated LEO, uh, they had the runway to, uh, to to give a crack at that innovation, and if they failed, it wouldn't it wouldn't be the DoD left kind of holding holding the bag, if that makes sense. And that you know that analogy of the DoD being left hold, holding the bag kept popping up over and over again, and it really made us think like you know is is the DoD willing to to be that and to do that? Are they willing to just take the capability and pay uh, and pay for it in the way that it pays for capabilities from the prime contractors now? Should they? It depends on what they're on on how how much they want they want a particular capability. Uh, let's go back to PNT for a second. Um, if the DoD really really needed the sub ten centimeter commercial PNT capabilities that some of these firms are trying to to create and, and get off the ground, and is perfectly willing to be the only customer for it, and they just need that capability because you know for for whatever reason, then yeah, go ahead, go you know the DoD should should go for it. But if it's trying to meet all these kind of uh, strategic goals that it has in tapping into the commercial market, you know, for commercial space, and I would even argue more broadly in defense innovation, then it should really be, I think, cautious about how much it's going to get and temper its expectations about how much it's going to get without a commercial market for uh, for the same technology, because it's going to end up bankrolling any of the research and development that's that's needed. It's not going to tap. It's not going to get the benefit of uh, the kind of fast iteration that you get from the commercial market for different applications. It won't certainly won't get the cost effectiveness because the market will only support a smaller number of, of players. So, you know, kind of long, long answer to, to your short question is uh, it, it, and I wish I had a more decisive one is it depends. In, in looking at all of those things, you made some recommendations and you came to some conclusions in your report. I was hoping you could kind of enumerate some of the problems that you see with the acquisition process for Space Force and for Department of Air Force and some of the solutions you see. I know you, you mentioned market intelligence and the acquisition process. Can you go through that a little bit? Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, some it's not, uh, <laughs> pardon my choice of words, but some it's not rocket science. Um, <laughs> The market intelligence piece is uh, is a bit of a newer one because when we were doing this this analysis, and, and I'll I'll be quite frank, we we, we have some economists on staff. Uh, I came from a, a management consulting uh, background for for some time. We did some very basic financial analysis, very basic kind of 
you know, if I was, if I were, you know, this startup and I was trying to build a financial model, what would it look like? And what we were surprised, uh, we were kind of surprised that, that this was not a more prevalent view within the Department of Defense. And that's not, that's not to cast, you know, uh, criticism on them. Uh, this is a, a new world uh, when we're really focused not only commercial space services, but across the, across the acquisition community, when we're focused on using commercial technologies in a way that we hadn't before, where we're kind of you know setting the requirements, they build it, we buy it. And so I think there's a greater need for that understanding of how markets and firms behave in a non-defense prime world, because defense primes are a, are a different beast in terms of the way they behave financially. There's a greater need for that 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 set of instincts, that set of skills, uh, more broadly across the Department of the Air Force and the Department of Defense. It's not, you know, it's not difficult, but it's it's just a different framework that that I think the acquisition community, the requirements community needs to, the concept development community needs to take a look at. How do they get that? Well, that is that is a tough question. I think there's a, there's a number of ways. We didn't delve into it in the report. I think one way is to make uh, hiring more attractive for folks that have some of this background. I don't think you grow it internally. I think that you know those those are rare, rare cases when you do. I think a lot of it comes from folks that have industry experience, have experience starting and and uh, and running uh, running companies, participating in the defense acquisition process at a, at an earlier stage, and having a more prominent voice for that. Um, but at the same time, I don't believe it's one of those cases where like some in you know some common commentators really want to burn the whole place down and start all over again. I don't think it's that. I think there's plenty of room and plenty of demand, plenty of need for the what I for lack of better terms, the traditional acquisition process, the traditional capability and uh, and requirements process. I mean, you just look at Ukraine today, and you know we're 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 talking about one five five shells, and those are you know those are not very high tech. Those are those are done through the traditional acquisition process. I've looked a couple myself over over the years. Um, it is. You know, it it doesn't mean that you that you take apart the entire acquisition system. You just have to be open uh, to this part of it that is going to be more involved in the commercial, that's more intertwined in the uh, in the commercial sector. With regard to the other recommendations, um, uh, contracting capabilities. Once you want to go into this, there's got to be a lot more uh, flexibility. Uh, or, or the potential for flexibility in how the department writes uh, contracts for these firms, because it's going to because their services, because they're a little bit different than the traditional things where you bought, you know, you buy the capability outright. Um, I think that there's a lot of room to grow for that, and that goes. I mean, that's kind of goes uh, hand in hand with the department's increasing increasing usage of other transaction authorities, OTAs. We did some previous research that really delved into how the contracting force is dealing with the demand for greater uh, use of OTAs. If you can kind of imagine your typical contracting officer follows the federal acquisition regulation, and it's almost like it's kind of modular. You have certain modules of terms and conditions that are not boilerplate, but kind of standard. And you use that you use that playbook. I think of when you use an OTA, you you need what we call the varsity level of contracting officers that are able to negotiate directly with the firms, understand what their needs are, understand what the government's best interests are, and then adeptly create, you know, without the kind of playbook, without the framework of the federal acquisition regulation, create the right terms and conditions uh, to make it to make it happen. That's Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr talking to the Rand Corporation's Jonathan Wong. You can find more of Alexandra's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. 
as CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part, 
Okay, I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.